So let's open our Bibles first for the reading to Micah 6, the reading of Scripture, and then after that we open to Matthew 9, verse 9 through 13. And so first to Micah 6, that's page 1075 in your pew Bible, and we'll read the whole chapter. Hear now what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, O you mountains, the Lord's complaint, and you strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a complaint against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you, and how have I wearied you? Testify against me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt, I redeemed you from the house of bondage, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember now what Balak king of Moab counseled, and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him, from Acacia Grove to Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with with thousands of rams, ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. The Lord's cries, the Lord's voice cries to the city, wisdom shall see your name. Hear the rod, who has appointed it? Are there yet treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the short measure that is an abomination? Shall I count pure those with wicked scales and with the bag of deceitful weights? For her rich men are full of violence. Her inhabitants have spoken lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore, I will also make you sick by striking you, by making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied. Hunger shall be in your midst. You may carry some away, but you shall not save them. And what you do rescue, I will give over to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread the olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. And make sweet wine, but not drink wine. For the statutes of Omri are kept. All the works of Ahab's house are done. And you walk in their counsels. That I may make you a desolation, and your inhabitants a hissing. Therefore you shall bear the reproach of my people. So we'll turn now to Matthew 9, verse 9 through 13. And then we'll come back to the text. Matthew 9, verse 9 through 13. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw that They said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We'll go back to Micah 6. And the text is verses 6 through 8. We'll just read that through again. 
With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. So this sermon was first preached by Reverend Reuben Bradenhoff, and uh, you may be wondering, because I did in years past, about yet another Bradenhoff reading sermon. Well, the reality is for us non-pastors is that uh, both the Bradenhoffs, they're very consistent with uploading their sermons and readings to the internet, which we're very thankful for that, written and available. Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, it could be that you have a favorite Bible passage or words that you've memorized or hung on the wall or have on a coffee mug. Maybe there's some text that you often go back to, one of the Psalms, a piece of Romans, maybe part of the Sermon on the Mount. Someone once said that the Lord Jesus had his favorite text too. There's no question that his whole life and ministry were shaped by Scripture The four Gospels show us that. Yet it isn't often that Jesus quotes the Bible directly. Still, one text does stand out in his ministry because he quotes it twice. The passage is Hosea 6, verse 6, where the Lord says through his prophet, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. On one occasion, Jesus has to defend himself against the Pharisees who were scolding him for eating with tax collectors. Christ quickly turns the criticism around and says to the Pharisees, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. In other words, Jesus says, for all of their criticism, the Pharisees have problems of their own. Namely, they have a fine outer crust of religion while their inside is hollow and loveless. On another occasion, the Pharisees rebuke Jesus for how his disciples plucked some grain on the Sabbath and after defending the twelve, Jesus turns attention to how it was actually the Pharisees who were living out of sync with God's law. If you had known what this means, he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, from Matthew 12. Maybe a couple of references here aren't enough to make Hosea 6 uh, his favorite text, but it does show us a key idea for Christ's ministry. He seeks true faith. He emphasizes the need for a holy and a merciful life. God had commanded Israel to do sacrifice and ceremony. He did. But if it never touched the inner part of the person, then it lacked all value. On this theme, Jesus could have well quoted from another of the minor prophets, from Micah 6, 6 or 8. For there the same truth shines brightly. What does God really want from his people? Is it Israel's burnt offerings and oil? Does God desire merely our prayers, our money, and Sunday psalms? Or something more? So I preach to you God's word this morning on this theme, with what shall I come before the Lord? We'll consider first the reason for the question, the wrong answer, and then the right answer. So the reason for the question. This morning's text is well known, and at first it sounds so positive, but here, as always, we have to consider the context. More exactly, why is the prophet saying this? And the reason is not so nice. Micah was a prophet 
from the country, countryside of Judea, and he was called to address especially the people who were living in Jerusalem. For him, it might have been intimidating to face the crowds and bring this message. But uncomfortable though his words may be, he simply has to speak. As he says in chapter 3, verse 8, I am full of power by the whole spirit of the Lord and of justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Chapter 6 is part of that message. And this chapter has been called a covenant lawsuit. For it's as if the Lord is taking his people to court and he's arguing against them. The Lord has a complaint against his people. He will contend with Israel. That's verse 2. In this lawsuit, the Lord's the plaintiff. That's the one suing. Micah is his spokesman, and Judah is the defendant, and the people of God are accused of idolatry, injustice, and false worship. It's a fair trial. The people are given even the chance to make a counter-argument. The Lord says, O my people, what have I done to you, and how have I wearied you? Testify against me. In other words, did God give them a reason to stray? Had he been unfaithful, or was it his doing that they'd become bored with his holiness? No, their disloyalty has no excuse, because for so long now his people have received his grace. The Lord stands up in court, and he gives his testimony of this. From verse 4, For I brought you up out of the land of Egypt, and I redeemed you from the house of bondage. He delivered them from the very worst of misery. And that was just the beginning. So led through the wilderness, sustained with bread from heaven, defended against all their foes, shepherded by Moses, brought into the land of the promise. In chapter 6, God calls on them to remember all his mercies, and he calls on them to count every reason why they should give their attention to worshiping God truly, genuinely, and lovingly. It's the same way that the Ten Commandments begin. They remind us of our blessed redemption, our deliverance in Christ. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Hearing those words every Sunday, we know that God's law isn't meant as an impossible burden on our lives, but as a joyful duty. A person who's been saved through none of his own contribution, rescued graciously from death, such a person has a world of reasons to come to God with thanksgiving. <clears throat> and that's the core of Micah's message here to the people. Beloved, isn't it even so more today? For the Father has sent his one and only Son to this earth, and by the cross he delivered us from our sin and condemnation, and by his resurrection he gave us life and glory. Today we know how God's covenant lawsuit was brought against Christ. It was Christ who was judged and cursed and killed as the covenant breaker. He took upon himself all our charges and all our guilt. He who is without sin was made to be sin. He did it so that we can go free, so that now we can walk humbly with our God. So with verse 6 then, with what then shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Isn't that always the question of one who's in covenant with God? Isn't that the response you'd expect from ones who's saved by grace? What should I give to the Lord for all his mercies toward me? How shall I bow before him? How can I honor him more? Because of the Lord's goodness and grace, it's what you and I should ask every day of our lives. So Micah asked the question, but really Judah knew the answer already. They had the law, they heard the prophets. This book is only seven chapters long, but Micah's been warning them for decades, yet they haven't been listening. They still thought God was happy with them, happy with their perfect church attendance and their generous contributions, but they had forgotten the kind of response that God is seeking. So now we have the wrong answer. 
So had Judah rejected God? Did they no longer believe in him? Not at all. They wanted to have God in their corner, especially with the Babylonians making noises about going to war. They wanted God as one of their allies. This is what they said in chapter 3. Is not the Lord among us? No harm can come upon us. God had become like a life insurance policy that we keep in a filing cabinet. The Lord was there just in case the unthinkable happened. The people wanted to preserve that security. So what did God want from them in return? With what should they come before the Lord and what will keep him happy? In answer, the people pay very high, but they do not pay right. They focus on excessive giving and on elaborate displays of worship. They think that God is interested especially in the cost or beauty of what they bring. Isn't that how people have always thought of it? From the days of Micah to the days of Jesus and of the Pharisees and now today, many people find a sense of satisfaction with their various activities in religion. And so we hear things like this. After all, he's done what was expected. She's kept to a certain standard. I was at church, wasn't I? I pray for my meals and I put money in the bag and send kids to Christian school. Didn't we have a good home visit last month? I've done my bit. Didn't I go to Lord's Supper? But what's the real reason we come before the Lord with our sacrifices and tithes? Why have you come to the temple, to the house of God? This is what Judah forgot. Or what's the purpose of our prayers and songs? What's the motivation for our gifts? This is easy to forget. Even as we sit in church this morning, what's it for? Who are we trying to please? The elders? Our parents? Ourselves? The Lord teaches us that true sacrifice has a special character. Right? Worship is marked by something simple yet essential, and it goes all the way back to Moses. So think about what he asked the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. And now, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, and to walk in all his ways, and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? Do you hear the clear echo of that passage with the words of Micah? What does the Lord require of you? He wants the heart. He wants your soul. He wants the very being of a person offered in love. Sure, the Lord commanded that sacrifices be brought to the temple, and that was his law. But if you strip it all away, what is in a true offering? An acceptable sacrifice is one with a genuine motive, the urge to glorify God. It arises from a heart that has repented from sin. So a right prayer is offered by the person who relies on God's grace because that person knows that God's grace in Christ is his only hope. But in their blindness, the people were offering everything except the one thing God wants, which made all of Judah's answers to the question that is asked so fundamentally wrong. In verse 6, says, Shall I come to him with burnt offerings? That's what you'd expect. God's requirement in the law began with offerings in which the sacrificed animal is consumed by fire. And if you wanted to go one better, you'd bring calves a year old. The, the law permitted sacrifice of calves that were as young as eight days. Pretty small. So if you brought a yearling, this was a bit more of a sacrifice. And by one year, with all your time and attention, this had become a valuable animal. Maybe you can tell where this is going. There's a progression uh, in these gifts from a simple burnt offering to one a little more expensive, a calf a year old. But the people wanted to do better than what the law prescribed. To be sure, it was enough. But is that really what God wanted? They could read Samuel's words to King Saul. Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than to sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. 
from 1 Samuel 15. As King Saul knew, it's always easier to meet the outward expectations than to truly walk in God's ways. It's just like it's easier for us to keep doing what we need to do. Monthly donation, Bible reading at supper, prayer at bedtime, Holy Supper attendance. You can do all of that and still have a life that isn't being walked humbly with God. So let's go back to verse 7. Never mind that people say, how about more rams and more oil? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? The escalation of gift continues because a person seeking to do right for his own security is never sure when he's done enough. I'll repeat that. Because a person seeking to do right for his own security is never sure when he's done enough. Imagine whole herds of rams were slaughtered at the temple. Would this be sufficient? Or shall we add endless gallons of oil? Or what if you never have a moment's rest because you're on every committee possible? Or what if you work 70 hours a week so that you can double your contributions to church and mission? What if you only read the Bible and nothing else? What if you never swear and never steal and always speak politely to others? What if no one can ever find fault with your public conduct or the behavior of your children? Surely that would be enough for God. The people of Judah were probably actually frustrated at Micah's words. What more could they have done? Why wasn't God satisfied? But they've missed the point. No gift, no habit, no tradition can substitute for a sanctified heart, for a life that's been reformed. Brothers and sisters, if you don't love the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, then nothing else counts. If you're not motivated by his glory, then checking off all those boxes is an empty exercise. After all, aren't these things already God's? As the Lord said in Psalm 50, 12 to 14, the world is mine in all its fullness, so I will eat of the flesh of bulls or drink of the blood of goats. Offer to God your, offer to God your thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Does the Lord really need our time, our talents, and our 10%? He doesn't. But when they're offered in gratitude in Christ, these things are precious. When our lives are committed to him in love, the Lord counts them a real treasure, and he gladly receives what we give, imperfect as it all is, and when these things are given in faith. But, the first, the, but first, the rest of Judah's answer. It goes from the exaggerated to the depraved. The next verse says, Shall I give my firstborn for the transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? So this was a pagan practice where they'd sacrifice the firstborn child to secure the blessings of, of the gods. And it happened even in the land of Israel. It's repulsive to think that this is what the living God requires. But why not? It's the logical extension of the same idea. If it's important to impress God, then you better give up the very best you have, the most valuable thing you can imagine, your son, your child, or your own life. But it's all so wrong. God's grace is free, and his love cannot be bought. And so the Lord simply desires our response of grateful worship and sacrifices we make in love. Once more, we should understand this better than Judah, for we know that God has already arranged for the full price to be paid. He presented his one and only son. To borrow the words of our text, God gave his firstborn for our transgression. He presented him for the sin of our soul. By that one sacrifice, he's made it possible for us to have a true and lasting peace with God our Father. So let's be clear every day on what motivates us in our lives as Christians. 
Let's know what should be behind our proper worship, our good behavior, our devotion to kingdom and service in the church because our inspiration is Christ. Our reason in all of this is the perfect gift of God's love in the Lord Jesus and we do it for him. So we have the right answer. And so we're back to that question. What does God require? Or with what shall we come before the Lord? For our answer, we, sh- we could show how each and every passage in Scripture applies to our lives. It would be an enormous list. Besides the Old Testament, we'd have to add the teachings of Jesus and the words of the apostles, and altogether it would be an overwhelming set of requirements. But remember, they all come back to a couple of basic laws, the greatest commandment and the second one like it. Indeed, Mike is simply calling the people to return to what they know. And what is it? The good that God requires is real thanksgiving. Those in covenant with God must have a true and living faith, a faith that shows itself each day by an act of love. In verse 8, the prophet says, He has shown you, O man. That Hebrew word translated man is significant. It's the word Adam. And it's used in Genesis to describe Adam, the one formed from the dust of the earth. And it's a word that speaks of our lowliness before God. We've got nothing original or valuable to offer because we're only his creatures made from clay. What can we ever give to God that he should repay us? Yet God has shown us what is good in verse 8. He has shown us the better way to live. We can try to find our own way, only we'll meet with disappointment. But God's way is good, and God will confirm that his way is good. He'll crown obedience with blessing. With that in mind, let his people do justly. It's verse 8. When you look through the book, you'll see this is a key theme in Micah. The people of Jerusalem were taking advantage of the poor. They were robbing each other, trampling the weak. But our God is a God of justice, and he wants to see justice done on this earth. That is, he wants every relationship between us to be shaped by his word. So we're surrounded by people. We have a relationship with so many of them. The question is, if we believe in God... Do we always strive to treat others fairly? Are we fair to our coworkers? Do we treat our spouse with understanding? Are we fair to our children? Gracious with our brothers and sisters in the church? Do we seek their good? Do we even put their interests ahead of our own? Do we have an eye for those who might be suffering, who need our defense? Do we do justly? And so let God's people love mercy. Also verse 8. That word mercy is much more than having compassion for the weak. Literally, it speaks of a royal love, most often describing God's covenant faithfulness to his people. He's attentive to the promises he's made, and he fulfills them all in his grace. He is merciful. So what should his people be like? We should be people of royal love. If we've made promises to others, we must strive to keep them. If the Lord's given us a responsibility... We must strive to honor that commitment. Yes, but what does the Lord require? That we walk humbly with our God. That's the broadest of these requirements, and it's such a rich image for our communion with the Lord, walking. Picture going on a nice walk or a hike with a loved one along the river or through the bush. When you walk with someone, it's just the two of you, and you're constantly attentive to him or her. You listen when he speaks. You're mindful of where she steps. You both stay on the path that's chosen. You might even join hands and walk together. 
That's like us and the Lord. He is in heaven and we are on earth, but Micah says we can walk with him. That means having a constant awareness of where God is leading you. It means always being attentive to God's voice in the word. What does he want you to do? Where does he want you to go? Is your hand resting in his? Beloved, would you say that you are going with God? Or have we left him behind wanting to do our own thing? Have we forgotten the sound of his voice? The thing he requires is that we walk with him and that we do so humbly. Micah emphasizes once more the need to have a knowledge of our smallness. Psalm 51 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Humbly we walk with him, but expectantly. For he is our God, says the prophet. The prophet's been challenging his audience. You know this God. So often you've enjoyed his aid. He's redeemed you from Egypt. He made you his own. Now the prophet says again, walk with your God, for he is yours, the one you can depend on. Don't try to make it alone, but walk humbly with him. It's quite simple. This is what God requires. This is what life in covenant looks like, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Simple. Yet no one in Judah should think that they can meet this standard, nor should any of us think that we meet this standard. The answer is not to try harder, or to do more, or to get busier, because that'll never, ever be enough. Yet there is good news. The one true sacrifice has already been presented. All of the requirements of the covenant have already been met. Jesus Christ came before the Lord his God, and he presented himself in perfect obedience. With his precious blood, he's atoned for every sin, and he's covered every failing. So one more time, we can say it and praise God. Christ gives us every reason to come to God in thanksgiving. Christ gives us every reason to make Micah 6 verse 8 our life's work, a text we often return to as our calling, our purpose, and our privilege. In Christ and for Christ, let us fulfill what is that good requirement of the Lord, doing justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly with our God. Amen.